0: Uh, I'm Tom Patterson, uh, Bradley Professor of Government and Press here at the Kennedy School. Um, this is a double pleasure for me, not uh, uh, simply to get a chance to listen to one of the best correspondents on what's happening in the Middle East, but to welcome back a former Shorenstein Center Fellow, uh, Deb Ames. Uh,
1: There's life after Shorenstein,
0: <laughs> but it's well, not it's nearly p- as much fun. Uh, <laughs> better for having been here. Right? But if, uh, when Deb was here, she did a really remarkable paper on Iraq and the media in Iraq and uh, sort of all the efforts on the part of the U.S. to establish a a flourishing media system and then how basically it sort of got taken over along sectarian lines, and yet how Iraqis figured out how to navigate that kind of interesting and difficult terrain. And uh, Deb has been reporting, as many of you know, from Syria. She's been with uh, NPR for quite some time before that – well, actually sort of earlier – and then ABC in there and PBS, a long and distinguished career, including DuPont Awards. Uh, Welcome back, Deb.
1: Thank you very much. It it is remarkable to be here. Um, I can't believe this much time has passed, and I'm off on somebody else's media. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit today about – social media in Syria, Um, and I think that there is so much social media in Syria that they will not have their Iraqi experience. They do not need any (coughs) outsiders to make their new media. They are quite experienced. Um, I started covering Syria in April 2011, and I went back to look at one of the first stories that I wrote. Uh, as Syria uh, began what we thought at the time was their version of the Arab Spring. Um, And I wrote this sentence, in Syria, young social media activists are playing a major role in what began as a demand for reform and now seems to be a call for revolution. And then the 18 months that I have spent covering the Syrian uprising some way, that's probably the most important sentence that I wrote. Um, It continues to be true even as a nonviolent protest movement turned into a civil war. And in Syria, activists have expanded the functions of social media. They have used it in a variety of ways. It is more important in Syria than it's been in any other uprising. And at the same time, the Syrian regime has developed some of the most sophisticated tools to counter social media. Now, that first story that I did was a profile, and it was a profile of a 27-year-old named Rami Nahle. He was on the run. He was in Beirut. Uh, He was there to escape a prison sentence or worse, because what he'd done in Syria was illegal. He had set up a revolutionary Facebook page under an assumed name. He was Malath Amran on the web. And he'd posted a very handsome picture on that Facebook page. What he'd done is he'd taken an amalgam of handsome guys all over the web, and he'd put them all together. So the picture was really of no one, which was perfect to escape <coughs> the all-seeing Syrian muhabara. Now, a few days after Rami arrived in Beirut, Syrian security police posted on his wall, on the Facebook page, Mr. Nahle we got you. Well, they'd figured out that Rami Nahle and Malath Amran were the same person, but as for getting him, not quite. Because he had already left Syria and he'd settled in Beirut, he was the first face of the revolution for this army of journalists who had also scrambled in Beirut to co- cover Syria. The Syrian regime had kicked out almost all the international correspondents who were in Damascus. Um, And it would be months before they let anybody back into the country. So Beirut, right next door, was the place to be. But still the question was, how were you going to cover a revolution when you couldn't get there? I saw Rami a few weeks ago in Washington. He's still an activist. He works for the U.S. Institute for Peace. And he said in those first few months in Beirut, he had 300 profiles written about him. He became the most famous revolutionary because he was the only one that we could get to. But what he was was the vanguard of this social media revolution that had – has transformed (coughs) the coverage of the Syrian uprising. Rami Nahli arrived with a computer, contacts with Arab satellite channels, and contacts with us. He came at the right time for us. What he could do was supply a wave of videos from hundreds of young Syrian citizens, journalists that could keep all these media outlets happy. He was plugged into a network, the LCC, the Local Coordinating Committees. They were organized across the country, all connected through social media. And they would determine, in those early days, the narrative of the Arab Spring. They would shape it. And that is certainly what Rami Nahli did. Now, for 18 months, this battle for Syria has raged on the ground, but it's also raged on social media sites because people on both sides are hacking, are posting, are uploading, are spamming in this frenzied propaganda war. For the anti-government opposition, social media sites have become a way to extend reach of anti-government groups. It's a place where democracy is obsessively discussed and actually practiced. You can see activists in the early days spend a week on agreeing on the name of a Friday protest. Now, that may sound silly, but it was always a messaging operation for them. It was a branding operation. So that decision was important because it was to send a message. And sometimes it would take a week of people talking on Skype to decide what the Friday protest would be called. Facebook pages, Skype's calls have all been used to organize cleanup committees and protest towns, a clearinghouse for death counts to get the most accurate count of who died, where and when. Now, rebel groups use Facebook sites to raise money from donors in the Gulf and Syrian expats both in Europe and the United States. Almost every brigade – I would say every brigade – posts videos with logos, signature music, highly produced battle footage, and campaigns for money to buy weapons – cameras – that are as sophisticated as an NPR pledge drive and as important as a political ad in a swing state. Every brigade has a media arm. Every brigade has a webmaster. The Syrian regime responded to social media by buying billions of dollars of software, most of it manufactured in the United States to track these social media sites. And the regime has partnered with the Iranians. There are specialists who came because they pioneered some of these tactics to track social media activists. They learned it in their own green movement. Um, Syria and Iran have become experts in something called a man-in-the-middle operation. And that is where you get between two Facebook users and you're able to uh, record keystrokes to discover passwords. It's a way that you can arrest networks of activists. However, the Syrians are not above using the cruder tactics of torturing people for Facebook passwords, which happens on a regular basis. At the same time, this propaganda war that goes on between the regime and the opposition has morphed into a media (coughs) battle that is wider in the region. And it's between two opposing camps in the region, the so-called moderate Arab states and what's called the resistance axis. And they also have their media outlets. There are now more than a dozen Syrian opposition channels that broadcast these videos from the field as well as interviews with commanders and activists. Barada TV comes out of London. They actually give lessons in how to shoot video better, get up on a high rooftop so you can see how many people are in the crowd, put a newspaper in front of your camera so we know exactly what the date is. Orient TV, uh, based in Dubai, uh, runs almost all of these videos that are coming out of Syria. Uh, It's run by a very wealthy Syrian businessman who now puts a half a million dollars a month into a rehabilitation center in southern Turkey for people who have been seriously injured on the battlefield uh, in this revolution. There are satellite channels that are funded by the Gulf states, al-Arabiya, al-Jazeera. They also continue the narrative of the opposition. On the other side, you have Syria state media. Syrian private channels. Mostly these are in the hands of Assad relatives or supporters, and they tell the regime story. And the regime story is as simple as the opposition. This is an international uh, conspiracy uh, to insert a uh, uh, Islamically radical Sunni Government in Syria. And this this is the narrative that is up against – it is a revolution for freedom and dignity against a repressive regime. These are the two narratives that are out there. Uh, Lebanon's Hezbollah uh, al-Manar continues the narrative of the Syrian regime, and so does Iranian state television. These opposing sides slug it out on the airwaves, on the internet. Cyber warfare is employed by both sides. The Syrian regime has a group called the Syrian Electronic Army. It's a group of young regime supporters who are hackers. They have targeted Columbia University, Brad Pitt, Oprah Winfrey, Winfrey, Reuters news site, and Al Jazeera's homepage. And if you wonder why Brad Pitt, his wife Angelina Jolie is a representative for UNHCR, and she goes and visits Syrian refugees who are in southern Turkey. In the Syrian army, young recruits (coughs) are now put in a social media warfare unit. Uh, it is now part of their 18-month uh, mandatory service. Uh, when a social activist is arrest- – when an activist is erected, uh, arrested, this unit's job uh, is to look at the uh, computer uh, sites, uh, to look at uh, you know lists of names, uh, look at Facebook uh, sites that are worth hacking. Uh, this is all information collection for a regime that is uh, you know, trying to quell this uprising. On the other side, anti-government uh, opposition groups have their international backers, and for them, it's Anonymous. Anonymous has hacked into presidential emails. Uh, opposition activists have also done so. There were three thousand emails that came out of the presidential palace that was offered to international journalists. The Guardian did the best job. Uh, of of going through those emails, there wasn't anything particularly uh, revelatory except for the extravagant shopping habits of the President's wife. That she has a pet nickname for him that is Duck, uh, that has spawned an entire sort of um, uh, satire uh, stream in the Middle East. Um, The internet-buying habits of her husband, Bashar al-Assad. Uh, appears that he downloaded game apps on his iPad while his army was pounding the cities of Hama and Homs. Uh, another revelation from that trove of emails is fawning emails sent by ABC's Barbara Walters to a young Assad aide to get an exclusive interview with President Bashar al-Assad, and those revelations led to Ms. Walters having to repudiate the recommendation she made for that student uh, going to Columbia University. And we've just had a whole trove of of revelations that Al Arabiya put out, and these were from reportedly the security services of Syria. Um, There was one piece of information that was so explosive that even the people involved all said this can't possibly be true, and that is that in May, when Syria shot down a Turkish jet, um, this particular hacking expedition said (laughs) that the Syrians killed the pilot after the plane went down, that they rescued the pilot and then killed them. Now, that revelation would be so explosive in the region that it would actually – could actually lead to war. So all parties in concern just said, don't think it's true, but we don't really know. Um, What's all this about? Um, I think for Syrian activists, social media has been a tool. It has helped them build a civil society after a moratorium on any organizing outside the state for 40 years. Syria is quite different from Egypt. I think most of us were, were used to thinking about Egypt as a revolt that took 18 days from the moment of the first organizing in Tahrir Square till the moment that Hosni Mubarak left office. But in fact, Syrian activists had a, a, at least a five-year history of organization that begins with an organization called Kifaya Enough. Um, There were – there was labor unrest in the country, and labor unions were organizing. There was the April 16th youth movement that actually takes its name from the date of a successful uh, labor uh, uh, protest. Um, The Syrian revolt didn't have that five-year span. They started from scratch in the spring of 2011, and it was social media that actually allowed them to move faster than the Egyptians had done to put together this uh, group of people on the ground. What the Syrians did learn from Egypt, Tunisia, and Libya, th- their job was going to be harder. The international media was banned from Syria, and they were going to have to do the heavy lifting of building a narrative. Their job was to simply portray this revolt as something that was popular against a brutal dictator, that all Syrians were for it, and they were the vanguard. The goal was to build international support and sympathy. Now, for them, the events in Dara, where the revolt actually started, a farming village in southern Syria, was a surprise even to the activists. But they seized on it. They seized on that and the ineptness of the regime in putting down the revolt in that town. From that moment forward, everything that didn't fit that narrative was simply edited out. The creativity of this group of people has been breathtaking. There were Fridays sitting in Beirut that you could see revolts on a – not just a split screen, but a screen split four ways – with live revolts in Dara and Derazor and Hama uh, and, and Homs. Uh, And all it really took was a computer, a camera, and a satellite uplink. At this point, the regime was completely outmatched uh, by the social media crowd. Um, Government-controlled media, they could get reporters to the scene, but the message that they were trying to convey is, nothing's happening here. And it was very difficult to make that challenge with this wave of videos that were coming out of Syria. And so you began to see them thinking about how to challenge the narrative. Um, in 2011, uh, there was a very crude documentary that was produced by Al dunya Television, uh, which is owned by the president's cousin, charging that there was this broad conspiracy and showing in detail that directors from Hollywood, from Israel, and from France had built miniature Syrian towns in the desert of Qatar where they would stage demonstrations, and that's what you were seeing on your television screen. Uh, uh, The the Twitter comments were hilarious. Uh, Dunya's on crack um, was one of my favorite. Uh, Nothing was happening was very hard for them to continue because every Syrian has a satellite dish on their house. So watching TV became a revolutionary act. You could watch Al Jazeera and see people on the street. You could watch Syrian TV and see no one on the street. And so as time went on, the Syrian government knew that it had become more sophisticated. And certainly the president knew how dangerous uh, the internet could be. His most important leadership job before he became the president of Syria was the president of the Internet Computer Society in Syria. And so one of the first things that he did was he banned Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Now, what he didn't count on is there was an army of IT graduates in Damascus. It doesn't really pay to be a political science graduate. And so all those people who had that kind of way of thinking became IT graduates, because there was a career path in Syria for people who understood computers. You could work at a bank. You could work... Uh, at, at an insurance company, and what they all understood was something called a proxy. How many, how many people nice. in the room know what a proxy is? <laughs> Not very many, because Americans don't need them. Uh, and I've asked this question in a number of forums, and I'm always amazed. In the Middle East, the entire room, hands would be up. Everybody in the Middle East knows what a proxy is. And it's a way to get around your government's ban on whatever it is that you want to see. And in June of 2011, I was in Damascus, and I was told that I would go up to Shahlan Street, where the internet cafe was, and I'd ask the owner, and he would install a proxy on my computer, because I had no idea how to do it. And I was back up again. I could talk to anybody I wanted on Skype. Um, when you watch the Syrian regime's learning curve uh, and moving towards a better skill set, What they figured out that they would have to do is create doubt. That was really their best strategy against this mountain of of tape. Aldunia was sort of the vanguard of creating doubt. They began a nightly segment. They had hundreds of producers scouring all of these videos for inconsistencies. You know, if there's that many online, you can find things. It's, It's not that hard if you have enough manpower to do it, and they did. And so they would find every night some way to highlight, yeah, they're lying, Uh, they're cheating, Uh, it didn't look like that. And it was a way to create doubt. And what that meant was that you would begin to question everything you saw. If they were lying on that, what else were they lying about? And it was an effective tool. The other thing is every once in a while there would be a story That would raise major doubts about the international media. And in one particular case, there was a young woman's corpse that was discovered in a morgue. She had been beheaded. Um, She had obviously been tortured. She was badly burned. And the activists saw this as a way to show the brutality of the Assad regime. They found her mother who identified the corpse. She was offered to international media. A lot of people covered this story as yet another example of the brutality of the Assad regime. A few weeks later, Syrian state media seemed to pull a rabbit out of the hat. It was very well publicized on their nightly news program, and they had an interview with the very young woman who we all thought was dead. She had her ID. She showed her ID, and she said that actually she had run away from home because her brother abused her, and he was one of those rebels. Um, It was just out there, presented for people to raise doubt. Now, I think none of us actually know whether it's true or not, because her family, who are now in Lebanon, have never seen her again. Did they interview her and kill her? That's a very conspiratorial way of thinking about it, but we don't know. Um, I think that the Syrian activists were so successful at building this narrative of a revolt for freedom and dignity against a uh, oppressive dictator that these days, outside observers feel particularly cheated. As the stories now are emerging of radicals in the ranks of the Free Syrian Army, jihadis, Salafis, it's like, who are these guys? Where do these guys come from? But the truth of the matter is that a lot of these people have been there all along. They just got edited out of the narrative. Activists didn't interview these people. Activists didn't cover these people. They were there. um, And the difference now is that the way that the Syrian story is covered has changed a bit. As the rebels have taken more territory in the north, as the border crossings have been, quote, liberated by the rebels, more and more international journalists are now able to cross into northern Syria and actually, depending on how much risk you can tolerate, are able to go and see for themselves. And so you've noticed there is now a whole different narrative that's coming out of Syria. uh, And it has to do with uh, religious radicals, jihadis, al qaeda inspired groups, um, and journalists are falling all over themselves to find these people and report on them because in some ways they feel that they have been cheated um, because they have been cut out of this story and this is their first time to go in and, and make their marks. Um, I I find that there's probably – we will come to some balance uh, in in the way that this story is covered, Um, but it has been different than every other. And in one way that it has been different is in the way that Syrians on the opposition side have cornered the market on humor. Um, And this is one thing that the regime doesn't know how to combat and doesn't even try. Uh, What you see um, is websites that now are completely dedicated to satire. Uh, There's a YouTube channel that carries skits from the town of Talbishi. Now, this is a town that has been under constant shelling uh, for months, but almost every day you can find a skit from Talbishi on YouTube. Uh, the town that has produced probably the longest-running jokes online is a tiny place called Kafr um, Most activists see it as the creative center of the revolt. Almost every day there is a picture that's posted on YouTube from Kafr Nabul. Uh There's a, a group between 10 to 20 people that are standing behind it, and it is an expression, almost always in English, um, of their sort of sly, biting humor about the situation they find themselves in. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, How to Get to Heaven in Syria just cross the street. (laughs) Darling, I gave your name up in interrogation. A picture of angry birds launching projectiles at pigs who look like Bashar al-Assad and Russia's Vladimir Putin. To NATO, the Libyans paid oil for you. We'll sell our houses to cover the costs. Um, In September, the Syrian Air Force bombed Khafarnabal. They dropped what's called a barrel bomb, and these are homemade bombs, barrels, that are filled with nails and explosives right in the town square. Uh, There were no Free Syrian Army rebels in town. It was obviously um, uh, an attempt to to scare Khafarnabal back into compliance. Uh, It's a place where that's never going to work. Um, most of the Syrian activists online were particularly disturbed that this town um, uh, had, had lost so many people because it has been one of those things that at the, the end of a day, if you're feeling bad about the revolution, you go up and, and <coughs> see what Khafre Novel is doing. But two days after that bomb, uh Kafr Novel was back up online on uh, and put a joke out uh, uh, on YouTube. I'm I'm going to stop there because I – this is a mixed group. There are people uh, in the room who could give this talk better than I can, um, and there are people who don't know anything about Syria. So I'd like to open for questions and um, go from there. Wow.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Deb. Uh, In terms of the social media, are there – Substantial and important differences in access to social media within Syria? Yes. And if so, who's advantaged or disadvantaged by those, those differences?
1: Um, if you are part of an activist network, it is likely that you have some access to a satellite capability of going straight to the Internet and getting around the regime. When the rebels took areas in the north, the regime retaliated by turning off uh, internet cell phone access completely. Um, So it has slowed down many of the activists because they can't do the things that they used to be able to do. They don't have that open access. And so it has disadvantaged rural parts of Syria. Um, There are countries that are trying to rectify that. The Dutch have just and this is a very interesting thing when you think about how aid changes and what people think aid is supposed to accomplish. The Dutch just sent 60 satellite dishes into northern Syria. That was, that was their aid package. Uh, that's what people wanted. And they wanted it because uh, some of these towns that are in contested areas are beginning to develop um, local governance. And they can't talk to each other. Um, and so that's a, a new way to give aid.
0: So the rule here at the Scharnstein Center is students get first shot. So are there some students that uh, have a question of Deborah Amos? Sure. Well, that's please, what?
2: Please. Um, here in the States, I think when we you know, when we watch Twitter, we often see polarizations, <coughs> right? So the Democrats or the leftists thought Obama did great last night, the conservatives thought Obama did great. It's, it's pretty hard to tell, actually what the average American thinks from watching social
3: media. Do you think we're seeing that same thing happen in Syria?
2: And, and if so, do, do we really have a sense what the average Syrian thinks about all this or what they would like to see? Quicker?
1: I'm going to give you a limited answer because I don't, I don't speak or read Arabic, so I can't tell you. I can tell you what English-speaking activists are doing. I can tell you what I do. Um, I know who the pro-government people are, and I follow them. Mm-hmm. I want to know. Sometimes I can see the sparring, um, uh, but for the most part, it's two parallel tracks. I think, I think everybody does follow. I think people do follow each other. Uh, they want to see what the messaging is, um, and they want to counter it. Um, but I don't know what's happening um, in, uh, in an Arab Twitter feed, mm-hmm. and there's plenty of it. Because I can see it, because there's some people who, who tweet in two languages, and I'll I'll get a ton of Arabic ones, and have to scroll down, and I realize, oh, I knew who that is that that's so and so, because I thought, what well, what am I doing following that? I can't read it, and then I realize, oh yeah, uh, every once in a while he does he does tweet in English, and it's and it's quite worth it. But there's it, it's quite remarkable, and you know the numbers in Syria are interesting. Um, it's only about 20 percent of the country that's that's on that has internet anyway, but the Arab satellite channels and these two channels that have been revolutionary channels magnify uh, the people who are online. Because if you're shooting a video, you know, there's only so many people who are going to see it on YouTube. But if it gets on Al Jazeera or if it gets on Al Arabiya or, or al Verde or Orient, then th- that's a much bigger, that's a much wider audience for you than just the, the, the YouTube crowd. Please.
0: That's okay, please. She's Um, one of the ones who could do this better than me. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Deb. Um, I I
2: have two questions. One is um, I had the impression when I was in Syria and also in Bahrain that there is a narrative for the West and for Western media, and there's a narrative for the Arab world. And the narrative for the Western media also on Twitter and on YouTube is we want democracy. But when you are actually on the ground and you talk to the kids who throw the of cocktails or whatever, um, and you ask them what exactly they mean, you get something that is totally different from democracy, especially in Bahrain. Um, I was wondering if you had the same kind of impression that people got some kind of media training, what to say to Western journalists. That's my first question. And the other question is um, the case of the gay girl in Damascus. I would love to, to hear your opinion because this was also one of the things where Western, where, where media in general, really was trapped. I, I don't know if you, everyone yeah. you want to make it maybe
1: wrong. Uh, Just in short, this was a, a a site that was gay girl in Damascus, and she wrote. wrote she was the darling of uh, you know the Washington Post wrote wrote a huge story about her. Well, it turned out it was a guy. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, you know, I think. I think it it was short-lived mostly because the regime didn't do it. <laughs> it just happened. You know, I I, I think that the burn body one was was much more damning because I I have always thought that that was a setup. Um that they knew w- that we would fall for it. Um I didn't um <laughs> Although gay girl got me uh, one news spot one news spot a blot on my record i I have to say because it was it was one of those compelling <laughs> stories um, that you know too good to check, and because of the way that we couldn 't go there, um, y- yes the the Western media has been had on on a couple of these stories. Let me address media training i don 't think so. I agree with you that I think there 's two messages. Um, I think that in this interconnected uh, Arab social media space, everybody either is talking to each other or seeing what the other ones are doing. There were Syrians who were on Skype every night with Egyptian uh, activists all through Tahrir Square, you know, they, they, helping them formulate what their <laughs> protest slogan would be the next day, that, because that's all about messaging. Um, And so they already had training in what you say. And I actually think some of them do believe it. Um, I think all of that organizing around um, cleanup committees and graffiti removal and the idea that you are accurate about your death count, I think that's all about social responsibility, citizenship, call it what you want, but it's about how I want to organize my life and how I want to be governed and who I want to govern me. And that comes from this generation of, you know, if there's one thing that the Assad regime got right, it educated all these kids from all over the place. Um, If there's one thing it got wrong, it was part of this youth bulge of, you know, 60% of the population is under 30, and there's no way in those stagnant Mm -hmm. economies that you can accommodate them. So the explosion was going to come somewhere. Um, When you talk to the rebels, they're village guys, mostly, and so they're not as sophisticated as the activists who were the first face. So when they talk about democracy, it's like, yeah, but they're like, uh, alcohol will be, uh, will be illegal, right? And you know, it'll be Islamic, right? And we'll have Sharia courts. So that's in that part of democracy, but because I I don't think they've really thought about it much. So y- you you have these two cultures um, that are in a very interesting mix. But also, these activists are not being quiet. We don't hear about them much, because we're talking about a militarized conflict. But they're still out there talking about governance on Skype, and you know they're running workshops all over the place in the refugee camps in southern Turkey. I see them. Um, and I, I hope they win. <laughs> I don't know if they will, but I hope they win.
0: Yes, please. <laughs>
2: Do you have a notion of how this is going to end? Are we going to see Algeria in the 1990s finally with the government triumphing over the infamous with the rebels? Do you have any notion of how, how this is going to unfold? Will there be a compromise? Will it be all or nothing? What's your sense of it?
1: I would guess that even Rami doesn't know the answer to that question. Um, This is a decades-long process. We are just at the beginning. Whoever decided to call it an Arab Spring did a disservice to what this is because it sounded to Americans like a television series. You know, it had a 13-week run, and then we're done, and there's democracy, and it's over. This is a huge change in the region. It's about the way people think. uh, It's about the way people relate to their leaders it 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 has a a, a social media component to it and so for anybody to tell you that they know how it's all going to come out is lying to you because i don't think anybody knows i mean and and there's room for people to kind of get in and and you know uh guide it a bit or help it a bit or and and you're already seeing that in syria the best armed people on the battlefield are the jihadis because there are people who believe in that ideology who've got money and who are funding them. So you know this is an open field for anybody to get in. The Dutch have just given you know sixty satellite dishes. Um, it's a very interesting time in the region.
0: Please. Um, I was
2: wondering if you could talk a little bit about how. A, I'm a journalist as well, and I know I try and use Facebook and Twitter as sort of
3: background color, and, and I have to be very cautious about it, but in a place like Syria, I would think you really have to rely so much more on that because that's sometimes the only access you have. So I'm just wondering how how you juggle those sort of things. Sorry. You know,
1: I, I can't tell you that there's a formula. Um, but it is part of what I have to do. And it, and it's, it's also country by country. A couple of years ago, I was in Turkey, and I was looking for uh, journalists who'd left Iran and could get to Turkey because they didn't need to have visas. And I was reading other people's stories, and I'd see a name, and I'd just you know, Facebook friend them. And by the next day, I, I could find them. I could call them. I could interview them. So that was a Facebook culture, and I needed it to find them. Um, Syria is... A, in English, it's a Twitter culture, so I'm I'm very dependent on Twitter. I, I am. It's killing me that I don't read Arabic. It is killing me because there is so much that's happening on Facebook. Every brigade, every single one has a Facebook page. All the debates that are going on are all happening on on Facebook among Syrians. Uh, the, you know, because I, I think at this point the regime has given up really trying to arrest everybody, and so you're you're seeing you know, much more cautious people are beginning to to get into to this, you know, posting my ideas on Facebook, which is quite revolutionary for Syrians to do. Um, and so I have to depend on translators to actually it's not just to translate for me, but to be able to identify, oh, this is an interesting and new thing that is happening. And you actually need to know about this. So it'll happen I mean, I'll give you a couple of examples and then, you, you know, you scurry to, to try to make sure that you understand what, what uh, you know ha- harden up the information as a journalist. there's been a sex scandal among the brigades uh, in the most influential and important brigade in Syria uh, the The young charismatic commander uh, got busted for a sex tape, and you have to assume that the regime knew how to record his Skypes chats, and it was everywhere this thing. Now, okay, how do you actually, you're sure it's him. Um, I, I, there was all kinds of problems with that story, and people were very careful with it, but it, be, it actually became quite an important story because he lost his position at the head of that brigade and now has a spinoff brigade because of that sex scandal. Um, it, you know, it starts on, I remember seeing, all of a sudden I saw people start to tweet that's not the same mole I've seen before on the side of his face. I thought, what the hell is that? Uh, and I'd see it over and over again. People arguing about a mole on somebody's face, and and so it took me a while to figure out that that's what they were talking about. And then it took the translators to say, oh yeah, 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 that's the that's the sex scandal. Uh, and and so <coughs> you just you have to watch all of it um, to to to. Be able to cover the story and then do traditional journalism uh, and confirm as best you can, uh, you know, once you know you've got a story. And and
3: do you find that you're constantly
1: having to attribute according to a Facebook page? Sometimes, yeah, sometimes you do. Um, And, you know, it's kind of like how do you know that when you call up somebody in homes uh, on Skype that there were 10,000 people in the street? I don't know until I see the video tomorrow, but I got a file before I see the video. And so you begin to decide okay, I'm going to trust that one because last week he told me the truth and I think that he knows. Uh, and, and it kind of goes like that.
0: Please. Um, why isn't the Syrian government just shut down the internet in the whole country?
1: Because nobody can do that. Mubarak tried to do that and there's a huge backlash. Because if you have an economy, you can't do that. Uh, And they all know that. So you can slow it down, which they do. um, But you can only shut it off in places that are so uh, outside of your control that it doesn't matter to you anymore, which is what they do in the north. They just shut it all down. But in Damascus, you still have a a working stock market. You have banks. You have insurance companies. um, You have hotels. You can't shut down the Internet. Uh, That is the conundrum of modern life. Please. Yeah, I think it's extremely uh, interesting
2: what you're saying and how social media is really so important. Because I think actually regarding Facebook, this, the weird thing about Syria was that it was actually illegal before the revolution, and then uh, and everybody was on Facebook, including the president's wife, so it was kind of bizarre. And then in February, when Assad was so confident that nothing would happen in Syria, he actually made it legal in the Republic. So suddenly you could be on Facebook. And I think actually that was never really made illegal again, but the problem was, as you said, that the <coughs> regime became more and more good at watching people on these media, so it became more and more difficult, dangerous for people to actually use it. But it, it was more slowing down the speed of the internet that, that caused the problems. I just wanted to get back to what you talked about, about um, uh, the, you were saying yourself that both sides used this as a propaganda tool. And as you said, no international media were inside for the first seven, eight months. Uh, the International media just tended to take, take up a little bit of these stories that came from inside. And as Suad was also saying, there is, I mean, there are so many examples of stories that were just a little bit Exaggerated even the example you give about how many people would be at a demonstration. Mm-hmm. One person would just call in a number and then that would cited all around the world. And so many times we saw that that was very, very far away from true. It doesn't really matter now because we all think that was the right direction things should go. But I just wanted to comment one of your first points about the Syrians not having to learn from us about how to build up media. I think they were actually quite a big job after this because. The normal Syrian doesn't trust anything anymore from the media. Uh, I mean, these people that we we're talking about—who twitters, uh, which side—I think there's a huge group in between who just feels they can't. They they turn tune in on, on Al, Al- Jazeera and then hear one thing, and then they hear, listen to the Syrian channels and they hear another thing. And it's been so. I got more the impression that people are—you can't trust anything in the media.
0: Well, I so part- think that's going to be
2: a big job. Also, teaching these new social media people and and the, the people that we hope will be mm-hmm. empowered. It, it's not just a That's right. You have to actually. yes.
1: But there has been, I mean, it's a pretty mixed picture. Um, and if you're there long enough, you see enough that you think, okay, there's, there's enough people who actually get the tenets of journalism and don't like it and actually try to truth squad their own videos uh, when they come out. And I've seen people do that. Um, They're pretty accurate on the death count, so much so that the U.N. uses the number because who else is going to do it? I mean, you know, the U.N. is not in there counting. And so that number is coming from somewhere, and I am told that it's coming from the activists. And they've been scrupulous about, you know, not making up those numbers um, because they knew that that was important. Um, I think as time has gone on, some of the better uh, journalists have gotten killed because they have all been targeted, all of them. Uh, and so you you know, you know have a cell phone up, and you are as likely as somebody, more likely than somebody who's shouting, to get shot in the head. And and some of that has even been recorded as, as it happens. Um, I think that going to your point about this idea that they don't trust anything, that was one of, uh, in some ways, the regime uh, creating doubt exacerbated that problem. So if you can just even make your supporters doubt, um, then you know, there is no truth. Um, I am seeing at the same time groups in Beirut, in Jordan, and then someone in Turkey uh, really thinking about how to shape media. I'm also seeing international groups coming together on how to shape Syria's, you know, healthcare system. Um, SAMs, the Syrian American Medical Society. They all just went to Istanbul with doctors from across the, you know, the planet. Syrian doctors. There are people who are thinking in post-Assad terms, um, and 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 some of them, are, they're, you know, they're they're new efforts. They're getting some funding to train people. A- and you know, w- w- we'll see. It would be a shame to lose all of that expertise that we saw uh, coming from the fields, because some people got really uh, were really good uh, at what they were doing.
2: Yes, um, I was wondering if uh, within the refugee camps, Syrians who ended up in refugee camps, if there was um, any alternative narrative that was coming out, and if, if they are contributing to the narrative, and how they are using social media to stay in touch with people back home and stay in touch with what's happening back home.
1: They do that. But there's something really strange that happens in Syria, and and I, I will go back to a piece of journalism um, and now I see it from both sides, both from the activist side and, and, the, and, the, and the pro-regime side. Media is designed to tell you what the line is. You know, you, you, they don't need to send a, a minder with you anymore um, when you we come in with a, with a legal visa. You, you can go to a hospital, a government hospital, and you can talk to soldiers who have um, you know, been wounded, and they will tell you everything they heard last night on Syrian television. Uh, there are foreign fighters.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: how how do you know that? They have accents that are different. What kind of accents? Oops, one more question that Syrian television didn't tell me the answer to. So, I mean, it's fun to sort of play uh, because you know how far the narrative goes. Um, Same thing happens on the other side. So anybody who goes to a refugee camp uh, now in southern Turkey and says, what happened in, pick your town, Dizir al-Sahur, there is not a person in there that will tell you a conflicting story, not one. Because there has been a narrative, and they know what it is, because they either see it online. Um, it's quite remarkable uh, how everybody has the same line. And and it's, it's becoming increasingly hard, even on the opposition side, to get anybody to tell you anything that is negative. I was trying to do a story in Gaziantep, uh, and what I was trying to do is find – upper-middle-class Syrians who didn't like the rebels in Aleppo. You know, I know that that is true, but I couldn't get anybody to tell it to me. And certainly, I, uh, I asked somebody to get 20 people to come, and they were dentists and doctors. And, and every time I would ask, somebody in the group would like, you know, be a political commissar. So the only thing to do, this goes to your question about how do you work as a journalist, is I pull them out one by one. Uh, so that the others couldn't, couldn't hear what they were saying. And I'd find ways to get them, you know, I would say things like, so are business people giving the rebels money? Uh, not yet. Hmm. How about water? Ooh, not yet either. And that, that was a backwards confirmation of what I was trying to find out. But th- these narratives are very strong in both communities. Um, that does go to your point a little bit about there may be a problem with the media. Um, and how people think about it in a in a post Assad society, um, and you know, let's hope that there's enough training and and people who you know rethink this way, um, so that there is a freer media when the moment comes that you can have one.
0: Ronnie, do you think the experience of the media, the international media, now reporting in a more sophisticated and more Accurate and comprehensive way uh, on Syria Um, will spill over into perhaps uh, getting better reporting on, say, Iran in the Western media, which I I think is extremely biased and incomplete. But do you see any any lessons, uh, especially given the history of the media's pretty poor performance here in the West on the Iraq invasion?
1: Well, here's. I, I don't know, Rami, because this is a real role reversal, isn't it? <laughs> are you asking me a question? Um, I mean, think about what's happened in northern Syria. We are all sneaking across the border. I'd like to think that I don't feel like I'm sneaking. In fact, when, when you go into Syria now, the Turks stamp you out and a bunch of rebels stamp you in. It feels pretty normal to me, but, you know, I am breaking international law is, is what I'm doing.
0: The Americans do that all the time in the Middle East. Apparently yes,
1: and somebody just pointed this out to me, and I kind of went, "Oh gosh, you know, do we have a policy about this?" Uh, you know, I've never asked the office: Is it okay for NPR for me to break the law? Can I cross a border illegally? It's just occurred to me, like in the last week, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. But nevertheless, I think the answer with Iran is no, because we can't get there. We we weren't great when we couldn't get to Syria as as a group. Um, I think we've gotten better as a group um, now that people are starting to go in and we have more access. We can interview people. We can talk to people. I think the story is becoming fuller still. I mean, what is happening in Damascus? I don't have a clue what's happening really in Damascus.
2: Uh,
1: I, I think it's very hard to know. So unless we can sneak across the border in Tehran, but what would be the point of that? you know the the point of of being able to go there i mean in a way and i would make this argument all the time to the syrians to very deaf ears let us in you want better coverage let us in strangely the people who understand this the best are the saudis the saudis well, you want a 6 month multiple entry yeah And you go down to their embassy, and you ask them about it, and, you know, you'll meet Niall, who's the brother of the ambassador, and he'll say, oh, I know you people. You know, you'll write a couple of bad stories, and then you'll get bored, and then you'll write normal stuff, and it's fine. We get that. We get exactly how you behave. (laughs)
3: It's
1: true. That's exactly what happens. You know, oh, women can't drive. And, you know, there'll be three of those. And then you you settle down, and you write, you know, more complicated stories about the Saudis. And it's surprising that they... They're sophisticated enough to figure that out. The Iranians, uh uh-uh. uh. Syria, same way, you know, that you've got to follow everybody around. So the answer, uh, no, I don't think so. I think we're going to get crap reporting from Iran for some time to come, hmm. which is a pity because we could slide right into war because of it.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Melissa, please.
3: Okay. Um, yeah, but you know, as always, I come and learn an enormous amount listening to you talk about the area of the world that you cover, and I think you're one of the only people that I hear in any kind of regular way or read that is talking and doing stories that relate to how this story is being told, which I think is really important. I mean, we are in an era of transparency with media, presumably, and I think it is important that Western audiences understand the dynamics that you've just walked us through. Are you finding that this is, in fact, a topic that more than you were writing about? I mean, Rami and I did a panel last fall where we used Deb's story, in fact, uh, when you were talking about the way that government was figuring out how to come back against the use of social media. It was one of the many pieces you've done on this. Are you finding, I mean, are there other places to go to get this kind of reporting, or?
1: No. No.
3: So I'm not missing it somewhere else. It's, no. It's just not being told. Uh,
1: you know what? I do see it. Um, exactly. You know, but, you know, you have to be an obsessive to find it, um, which I am. So, I, you know, I read everything that there is on Syria. And so, you know, all of a sudden you find out that there's something called Syria Tube. And Syria tube, Syria is, tube. tube is the regime's answer to YouTube. And that's where you find all the pro-regime videos now. They're all there. And it's ominous tanks coming into Aleppo. There's a lot of smoke and there's a lot of music. They're great. Um, on the other side, there is now a way to track war crimes in Syria where there's a hashtag called Bashar Crimes. And anybody inside Syria can crowdsource... Um, war crimes, that's all, it, it's out there, you know, you can go find it, um, but it's few, It's hard to find it. But in
3: terms of bringing it together as a story, that you're bringing to your listeners, or people you're bringing to their readers?
1: <laughs> well, that's all print, but I'm not, I, it's, a hard, it's, it's a hard story to do. The other thing that is very annoying about Syrian coverage is it lends itself to, look at me, I'm so brave. Um, there's a whole lot of reporting that's happening in Aleppo now, I, and I see it. Te- the television people are the worst criminals in this category, mm. where you know it's shaky, we're running, and uh, we learn nothing. <laughs> but you know that I am very brave, <laughs> <laughs> and that is what the story is primarily about. Um, yeah. Yeah. A, a, and you know, so, and unfortunately, some people get killed doing it, and have gotten killed doing it. Um, but you know that's journalism. That's branding. That's companies who want their reporters to do that because that brings you know cachet. And the BBC's fighting with Channel Four in Britain, and so they're yeah. they're all they're all into <coughs> I, I am brave reporting. Yeah. Um, but what you're looking for? Yeah, it's out there. You just got to
0: look harder. Give okay, time for one last question, and then we'll wrap. Okay. How yeah.
2: well involved is the U.S. in the, in the media?
0: And how involved or what do you think the U.S. role should be in Syria?
2: Well, that
1: would take a whole lot more than two minutes. Um, but I'll answer your first question. Um, they're trying to be involved. Um, they are giving, you know, in the last six weeks there have been six governance classes in Istanbul. Uh, the first one I saw was 36 young activists from Aleppo who one way or the other are involved in Citizen, um, civilian uh, boards in in these con- you know towns where the regime is not, and the rebels are in control. So the Americans are trying to do that, and they send them back with a computer and a you know a secure cell phone. Um, so. Uh, th- there are training courses in Beirut where people are coming to learn, and that's not the Americans, that's mostly Europeans, a lot of private private people are doing that. So the Americans are, are trying to, to shape, help, um, but not, not a lot, not, not a lot, really. Um, there's been big arguments in the administration about should we be doing more, um, and we'll see what happens after the election's over foreign policy has been frozen.
0: Deborah Amos, thank you so much.
3: Thank you.